Welcome to the second class of Mondays with the Mystics. We hope you enjoy this audio recording of our live class. Tonight we're talking about two great women leaders and early ordained women priests of the Episcopal Church, the Reverend Carter Hayward and the Reverend Dr. Polly Murray. You can find the presentation on our website, holycommunion.net backslash mystics, including links to the videos. You'll hear the audio from the videos, but to see the pictures, you'll need to go to the website. But I've gotten to spend some time getting ready for today with two folks that I really admire, um, two early women ordained in the Episcopal Church. And I want to talk a little bit about them. I think, well, if you told Carter Hayward, who is, who is alive, uh, that you thought she was a mystic, she would probably nod her head. Uh, Polly Murray probably would have looked at you a little bit sideways. Um, but I have found in both of these women a very particular vision. And I wanted to name it a little bit as part of this series. Lori and I were talking when we decided this was how we were going to do the Lenten series. We wanted to talk about, you know, it's really easy to just... Do, you could do a whole course on mystics and do nothing but white European men. There, there are a few women's voices in the history of the church, and we limited ourselves more especially when we talked about the last 100 years. Uh, Mark Smith was really excited when I said we were doing mystics, and he had all these ideas from the 14th century. And I said, no, Mark, last 100 years. But these are two voices that have been around for me. Uh, partly because of who my mom is, because she was in the, what I would say, the second generation of women who were ordained. She actually got to study with Carter Hayward a little bit. But partly because it's just the kind of generation ahead of me in the church that really lived through this momentous change. The thing that I will say about both of them, they're both Episcopalian women priests, and they were both ahead of their time. And I want to show the video of Carter Hayward first so you can get a sense of it. You're going to see about a four-minute snippet that's a preview for what will hopefully be a documentary in the coming year. Uh, The documentarians got their funding together, so hopefully this will be a documentary that comes out. Um, But this is a little snippet of the Philadelphia 11. You're about to hear audio from a video you can find in the presentation at holycommunion.net backslash mystics. Look for the second week and click on the presentation. ...is something radically new in our church. It calls for discipleship of a new depth and dimension. I was so naive, you know. I thought that bishops were good men and that... If you just, if you just could tell them clearly and eloquently enough what the what was going on, that they would see the problem, <laughs> do something about it. We didn't realize how powerful the opposition would be. They wanted to eliminate our existence. We understood ourselves to be priests, and each one would live out her priesthood according to her own integrity. 
underneath all the arguments, whether theological arguments, scriptural arguments, practical arguments, is the subject of human sexuality and sexual identity. And uh, has frightened a lot of people. I think of the 11 little priestesses all in a row, you know, like the little Indians. I'd be delighted if they'd go away. <laughs> We started this filmmaking journey four years ago, and today we invite you to join us. I'm a director of photography and a new mom, and the incredible courage and determination of these women is what pulled me into the project, that they were able to follow the call to lead the ministry and bless the sacrament through death threats and intimidation is incredibly inspiring. I'm also a filmmaker and a mother. I'm a history nerd, and I'm a former labor organizer. I believe in bringing people together to stand up for justice, and I believe we need to know our history. This film is really about the people involved, and these are deeply personal stories, and each one takes a different journey. After my first year in seminary, I went back to Charlotte and spent a good bit of that time working as a laywoman, a lay assistant in my home parish, and struggling with sort of who I am. Uh, in terms of my vocation, in terms of my sexuality. Oh, yeah, it really does. I was busy being a deacon in Rochester. I worked with women in the county jail and then followed them to Bedford Hill State Prison. You know, I just felt so torn about that, to have to spend a great deal of my time uh, you know, being interviewed and being taken out of my comfort zone. I did it. I think I did it. I think I did it well. I think I did what I needed to do. Um, but it took a great toll on me personally. I did it as an affirmation of who I am as an individual and to say to the church, you can no longer discuss this issue in principle. Women are not in principle. They are real human beings. We just finished collaborating on a film called Councilwoman, which will air nationally on PBS's World Channel this week. I was trying to sell you on, uh, on their idea. So uh, the good news is they, this was a Kickstarter, and they did get their funding. So hopefully the whole documentary will be made. So that documentary, does anybody know the... Um, Oh, I also wanted to show you, this is how you get to these on the page. If you go to our page and scroll down, you'll be able to get to all of the presentations. Um, so does anybody know what that group was called? What happened? What year it was? 74. Seven, was it 74? So 19, in the 1970s, before women were canonically allowed to be ordained, um, there was a group of 11 women in Philadelphia, and then about a year later, still before ordination was um, sanctioned by general convention, uh, another four in Washington, D.C., and they pushed the envelope. Um, and there were churches all over the country that were pushing the envelope. Uh, Holy Communion actually got in the newspaper in that time for having a service where every role except the consecrator of the Eucharist was filled by a woman, and that was seen as really pushing the envelope at, it, at that time. But of the 11 that were ordained in Philadelphia, uh, Carter Hayward is probably the most famous and probably the most documented 
because she went on to get a PhD in theology at Union Seminary, and then she had a whole career as a professor of Christology, that is, uh, the study of who Jesus is. Uh, She was a theologian at the Episcopal Divinity School and retired before that school merged with her alma mater union. And so this is Carter Hayward. You heard her interviewed in the documentary. Um, Carter was ahead of her time. She was literally ahead of her time. Uh, and in some ways, they're what they were called irregular ordinations, that is out of the regular, out of the rules, pushed the Episcopal Church faster than the bishops and a lot of folks were willing to really go. But once that had happened, the church had to decide, are we going to not go forward with the ordination of women or are we going to delay again? And it pushed the envelope forward. Carter's theology was also really viewed as ahead of its time. It's been really interesting preparing for tonight to go back and reread some of her stuff. I read a little bit when I was an undergrad, and even my liberal Catholic theologians at the University of San Diego were saying, ooh, she's pretty radical stuff. Carter pushes the envelope Um, But in some ways, she's just years ahead of where folks get to. And she starts pushing back against uh, dualities in a lot of her work. Just like last week, we were listening to Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau talk about dualities, dualisms. Carter Hayward is pushing back on things. I wanted to read you a couple of quotes from her. Um, In this first quote, she's talking about why she chose particularly Christology, Uh, why did she choose the teaching of Jesus to be where she was going to spend a lot of her scholarship. And she said a lot of it had to do with that very traditional teaching in the church about um, because Jesus was a man and and the priest stands in the place of Jesus, thus the priest needs to be a man. Um, And so this was directly in response to that. She says, In response to this theological nonsense, a central theme in my teaching over the course of my professional work spanning about 50 years has been that the daughters of God need to come out of hiding, shake off our complacency, and metaphorically step out of the tomb, risen together as fully human beings, alive with sacred Christic power, called together to incarnate an ever-rising God. This is something that's pretty typical of Carter Hayward and part of why she sometimes draws theological criticism. Uh, she wrestles a little bit with the traditional, you know, uh, what, we, what the traditional teaching of the church since about the fourth century has been about that we say in the Nicene Creed that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. Carter wrestles with that and how that works. And I would argue that more often than not, rather than to try to bring Jesus down from divinity, she ends up in a very Christian, what one might even say is an almost Eastern Orthodox perspective of raising humanity up. Um, She tends to use um, things as verbs that aren't verbs. So she talks about godding with a lowercase g, that is to say that Um, human beings that seek to follow in the way of Jesus can act like God, and thus they can God, they can make God real. And she talks about this, this Christic power to enact the loving way of Christ. 
And for her, that when it gets theological, it does push some boundaries, but it has real practical implications. She ends up talking a lot in her theology about love. This is maybe her most famous quote. I think it's from a sermon. Love is a choice, not simply or necessarily a rational choice, but rather a willingness to be present to others without pretense or guide. Love is a conversion to humanity, a willingness to participate with others in the healing of a broken world and broken lives. Love is the choice to experience life as a member of the human family, a partner in the dance of life. So this theology that pushes the boundaries and in some ways, you know, sets up some of the questions that happen later on in the late 20th and early 21st century in theology. She thinks them, but then she also gets into these questions of how does this live out? Um, For Carter Hayward, a big part of living this out after she was ordained, also uh, she was one of the first women to come out of the closet as a lesbian who was a priest. And for her, that was an important affirmation to make theologically uh, that she pushes into what does love mean, even if it's same gender love. And she would probably chastise me for saying even if. She would say, all of us in our loving can experience and make God real. One last word about love from Carter Hayward. So let's talk about love Not sweet dreams or idealistic notions, but the kind of love that does beat swords into plowshares. Let us imagine for a moment that this depth and quality of love is God, and that we can learn much about this God, this love, by living honestly in the tension. I find Carter Hayward really astonishing. Um, I think that She had a bit of a bad rap in the academic community, but I honestly think that when the academic community looks back, she will be one of the treasures of the 20th century in theology. But I think that she also had a major impact on our church in her willingness to step out and push boundaries. So the other person that I want to spend time with tonight is Polly Murray. And some of you know that I have a bit of a fascination with Polly Murray. I even preached about her in an Easter sermon. She was ordained after the change was made by the General Convention. So the Philadelphia 11 and the Washington 4 were all white women. um, And they pushed the envelope and then the next General Convention made the change. And Polly Murray was one of the first women ordained after that change. She was actually in seminary at General and Virginia Seminary. She went to both seminaries. Um, she was already, already had a PhD in law, and um, she actually was there for the Philadelphia 11 ordination. I don't know if you noticed the woman who um, they noted was the crucifer at the ordination of the Philadelphia 11 was Barbara Harris. Uh, keep her in your prayers. She is in the hospital currently. She was the first woman ordained to the episcopate full stop, like in the whole Anglican communion. I think we even beat the Lutherans on that one. I think she was the first ever woman bishop. No? Uh, was not a bishop, though. 
Yeah, so um, Barbara Harris was the first woman ordained to the episcopate, not to the priesthood. So she also was ordained after, she would have been ordained after Polly Murray. Uh, we'll read a couple of quotes from Polly Murray in a moment. Um, the other thing that is really interesting about Polly Murray today, um, so Polly Murray is having a number of buildings named after her very posthumously right now. Um, Yale, which is one of the places where she studied, I think she got a PhD there at Yale actually, uh, just renamed a college that had been named after sort of one of the great Confederate families. And they renamed it Polly Murray College. And Virginia Seminary, where I studied, uh, just named a whole building after her, even though she only studied there for one year, sort of on leave from General Seminary. So she's becoming a bigger and bigger deal uh, in recent days. And some of that is because of what Polly Murray referred to as Jane Crow. That is to say, she is one of the most important figures of what is called the Jim Crow era, uh, the segregated South, the time in which the laws were written to keep the black community and the white community separate. She's an important figure for a number of reasons. Uh, one, she's a writer. Um, she's an, uh, she wrote a number of different autobiographies. Uh, she sort of rehashed a lot of the same material a couple of times, but hers are some of the most important and most um, complete accounts, uh, first person, of what it was like living in the Jim Crow South. She also was the most important documentarian of the laws of segregation. Uh, she published a volume after she finished multiple law schools that, like, she created a code for um, different ways in which Jim Crow was enforced, from education to um, marriage laws about what they called miscegenation, that is interracial marriage, uh, to um, public use laws. She had a, and she's got this big volume, and she's the one who publishes showing what all of the different laws throughout the South are around segregation. She also, you've heard me say this before, but um, as a senior at Howard, uh, Howard, this is a video from Howard University. So Polly Murray was working on getting into law school at the University of North Carolina. If she had succeeded to get in, she would have been the first African-American admitted to the university. This was fascinating because she had an ancestor, her last name was Murray, she had an ancestor, a white ancestor, whose last name was Murray, who had endowed a scholarship at the University of North Carolina. So she had a really strong claim to say, like, why are you not admitting me to a school that my you know, ancestors, my provable ancestors, uh, helped to endow? Unfortunately, she... Um, worked on a lawsuit uh, with uh, lawyers at the time, civil rights lawyers. They looked at putting her case forward to try to force her admission into the University of North Carolina. But unfortunately, she had gone to undergraduate up in New York and was currently, her official residence was New York. And so North Carolina decided she didn't have grounds to sue because they, she couldn't, they couldn't force a public accommodation for somebody who was not a resident of the state. 
So instead, she went to Howard, and she was one of the first women to graduate from Howard Law School. Howard in Washington, D.C. is often referred to as Black Harvard. It was the most prestigious, in some ways still is, the most prestigious of the HBCUs, the historic black colleges and universities. So this is a video that Howard made for their um, convocation a few years ago when they gave Polly Murray an honorary doctor doctorate. And you're gonna hear from several Murray family members. You're about to hear audio from a video you can find in the presentation at holycommunion.net backslash mystics. Look for the second week and click on the presentation. In a country where being first is the most important, Anna Pauline Polly Murray was without peer. First in her class at Howard Law, first Black Deputy Attorney General of California, a co-founder of the National Organization for Women, and a leader in the Congress of Racial Equality, or a crusader for civil and gender rights during the dawn of post-war America. Polly Murray was born in Baltimore. By the time she was three years old, her mother had died and her father was institutionalized. She was sent to live with her mother's family in Durham, North Carolina. That home has been named as a national monument at the National Park Service several months ago. I believe living in the South, uh, growing up in the uh, Fitzgerald home with other relatives who had persevered and um, struggled, I think early on, that's where, you know, that was the foundation of her values and what have you. She moved to New York to finish high school, denied admission to Columbia University because of her gender and to Barnard College because of her poverty. She attended the Free Hunter College. Seeking to finish her undergraduate studies at the University of North Carolina, she was denied because of her race. She ran into a lot of obstacles because the schools that she applied to either didn't want to take a Negro or they didn't want to take a woman, but she moved around that and pursued it anyway. Even though she had documented that a great-great-grandfather uh, had uh, created a scholarship for the Murray family, and she was a member of the Murray family, but because she was African-American, then she was not admitted into uh, University of North Carolina. Riding in a bus in Petersburg, Virginia in 1940, she and a companion refused to sit on broken seats in the back of the bus. Inspired by her case and other civil rights cases that she had become involved with, she entered Howard University Law School in 1941, the only woman in her class. She referred to the sexism she faced as Jane Crow. After being at the top of her class at uh, Howard Law School when she graduated um, and getting a Rosenwald uh, Fellowship to go on, she was denied entrance into the Harvard Law School not because she was black or African-American, but because she was female. She completed graduate studies at the University of California and was admitted to the California Bar. She was hired as the state's first black deputy attorney general. In 1950, she published State's Laws on Race and Color, which Thurgood Marshall referred to as the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. Her book influenced Justice Marshall in his arguments in Brown versus the Board of Education. Her final paper at law school that took a position that um, separate but equal was against the um, 13th and 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. 
when her professor and Thurgood Marshall were trying to get a case together for Brown versus um, the Board of Education, they used her paper to uh, solidify their case. But at the time, even her professors were rather dismissive of her. So she had a lot of foresight and insight, and I really think she was very ahead of her time. Holly Murray became the first African-American to receive a Doctor of the Science of Law from Yale University and was tenured as a full professor at Brandeis University. She co-founded the National Organization of Women and spent much of her time fighting Jane Crow laws and attitudes. She saw an injustice and she stepped in. She was never interested in wealth or fame. Uh, she was more interested in the cause and, um, you know, how she could help. In her later years, Holly Murray turned from the law to spirituality. In 1977, she became the first African-American woman ordained as an Episcopal priest. She became a priest, an Episcopalian priest. She softened around the edges where it allowed her to be more at peace and less of a rebel. Howard University congratulates Dr. Polly Murray on her honorary degree in Doctor of Laws posthumously. So that's Polly Murray. That's some of Polly Murray. Uh, Polly Murray also in a recent biography, so not in her autobiography, but there's a recent biographer who's gone back um, and has read through Polly's letters and asks the question, her name was Anna Pauline Murray, and they asked the question, if Polly was alive today, would she identify as genderqueer or as, uh, as trans? Because uh, Polly really didn't like the feminine parts of her name. She portrayed herself often in more masculine ways. And from some of her writings, they wonder if she had that available to her, if she would use that language. Um, I find that really interesting. She was ahead of her times in a lot of ways. Uh, and I find it interesting that growing up where I did, I knew more about Carter Hayward than I did about Polly Murray. Carter Hayward's important in the life of the Episcopal Church, but Polly Murray is important in the life of the country. It's her argument that wins Brown versus Board of Education. Interestingly, Polly Murray spent a lot of her energy in her later life. You know, she'd done all this work in civil rights. Uh, as they said, she got arrested for not going to the back of the bus before Rosa Parks did. But in her later life, she did focus in on the church a bit. She was a parishioner at a church called St. Mark's in the Bowery in New York City when the rector there was a young priest named Michael Allen, who would later be the dean of the cathedral here in St. Louis. And Polly Murray and Michael Allen got along pretty well, um, had a really good relationship. But it, she recalls in her autobiography one Sunday um, in particular. Let me read to you from her autobiography. This is from her um, autobiography, Song in a Weary Throat, which is a really wonderful book. But this is her talking about the um, Philadelphia 11 ordination. This ordination was historic in more than one respect. It took place in a church in the heart of the Philadelphia ghetto, and a Negro congregation was the host. 
Symbolically, the rejected opened their arms to the rejected. The Episcopal Church would never be, never be the same after the widely publicized and much discussed Philadelphia ordinations. So you also have to know Polly Murray was writing in a certain time with a certain vocabulary. Um, she actually has a really interesting part in her book where she talks about, uh, for her, how it was very hard to transition from Negro with a capital N to black with a lowercase b because she found there was dignity in the capital letter, which is, it just shows you the time she was living in. Uh, but I find that interesting, her perspective on what is often called intersectionality now, um, that those who have been rejected would open their arms to the rejected. Uh, I'm going to go to the quote about um, being at St. Mark's in the Bowery. Um, See, she said, I remember only that in the middle of the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, an uncontrollable anger exploded inside me, filling me with such rage I had to get up and leave. Throughout the services, I kept asking myself, why is not one of the candle bearers a little girl? Why cannot the crucifer be a girl or a woman? There is no difference between discrimination because of race and discrimination because of sex. I believe that if one is wrong, the other is wrong. And to come into that fight in the midst of the church to bring her sense of theology, her sense of spirituality to this particular fight toward the end of her life was a really interesting way of doing it. And she theologizes about it. She says, a characteristic of evil is that we never fully destroy it. When we beat it down in one place, it pops up in another. Hmm. I find Polly Murray fascinating. So I have for you um, table lexio. Uh, like we did last week, if you were here, we'll be reading three pieces, um, and we'll ask a separate question after each one. It won't be for discussion, not a lot of intellectual talking back and forth, but sharing. So after the first reading, which is a bit from Carter Hayward, you'll get to ask, what word or phrase catches your attention? After the second reading, which is a poem from Polly Murray where she gives that line that is the title of her autobiography, The Song in a Weary Throat, um, you'll ask, what does this teaching, and feel free to talk about any of the teaching, um, touch your life today. And then the final quote is from a sermon by Polly Murray, and you'll ask, from what I've heard and shared, what do I believe God wants me to do or be? Is God, in, God inviting me to change in any way? When you get to each of those questions, you'll ask one person at the table to read, and then the question follows. And you'll just go around and share. Um, you can respond to each other with amens and, and head nods, but try not to question each other or push back on each other. Just allow what is said to be said, and then let the next person share. So here is your Lexio. You can find a copy of the readings and the questions at the very bottom if you press the button of the presentation. Again, the presentation is on our website, holycommunion.net backslash mystics. Thank you for joining us on this recording of our class. We hope to see you as the weeks go on.